And we were marching around Tallahassee, Florida in um, military garb around the campus of Florida A&M University because at that time, what I began to understand clearly was that, and shout out to HBCUs, what we were turning out were drones. We, they, mm. we weren't effective change makers. I didn't see progressive thought. I didn't see reimagining the system. I, I saw people becoming cogs in the machine instead of disruptors, which I thought the system needed. Welcome to Official Ignorance, the Death and Custody podcast, hosted by Dr. Roger Mitchell Jr. and Professor Jay Aronson. You are now listening to the sounds of official ignorance. Listen, we are in a great position today, Jay. On this episode, uh, I don't know if we're calling it a bonus episode. It does not matter. We are in store for a special guest who I've been a fan of, goodness, I guess, for close to two decades. You know, I don't want to age any of us. But there is a hip hop, I'll call them an organization, right? Is that, you know, I don't want to say it's a group, it's a movement called Dead Prez. And, you know, Dead Prez hit me and linked me in because of their, that primary song that changed the game for me is bigger than hip hop. It's bigger than hip hop, hip When it hit, you feel no pain. White folks that controls your brain. I know better than that. That's game, man. We ready for that. Two soldiers head of the pack. Matter of fact, who got the and where my army at? Rather attack and not react. Right then, when there was a put to beat, put to rhyme, put to reason, social political commentary um, that showed us the importance of the culture. And why the culture was was able to move us to a different level. And I don't know, B, if he's here or coming on, but we are hey. in the midst of greatness. Matulu, M1 of Dead Prez. It's great to see you, good brother. Oh, wow. Man, it is an honor to be here. And thank you for having me here to, to be in discussion with you. I think uh, this is an important one. Like you said, we uh, we recently shared a platform, a stage together at the uh, Hip Hop Caucus during the Congressional Black Caucus. It was uh, invigorating to be on the stage with so many truth sayers and freedom fighters. And so with that being said, thank you for having me here today. It's my honor. Well, I want to give my my friend, brother, uh, co-host and co-author an opportunity to introduce himself to you and ask you the first of many questions that we have today for you. Well, I will just say it's a huge honor to meet you. Uh, it's not often that I get to have a conversation with people who I've been listening to and admiring for more than 20 years. Roger said close to two decades. I, I, I hate to age us all, but it's actually close to two and a half decades at this point. Uh, before I knew that Roger or Brendan had any association with you, when we were talking about our shared love of hip hop, that's one of the things that brought, uh, Roger and me together. One of the first groups that I brought up was dead Prez. I've just been a fan of yours forever. And, and one of the questions I'm going to ask you eventually is 
when you see a, a, a nice white guy like me saying, I've been a fan of yours for almost two and a half decades, like what's your, what's your response to that? But I've just, I've loved your music. I've learned so much. Um, there are a few songs that have really changed the way that I see the world. Uh, and, and I just wanted to say thank you for that. Um, so, and also just introduce myself really quickly. I'm Jay Aronson. Uh, I'm a historian and human rights practitioner by training. Uh, Roger and I met more than six years ago now at a meeting in Toronto, and um, we were just giving talks on the same panel. And I asked him a question at the end of the panel about, you know, where do I go to get the data on how many people die in law enforcement custody in this country? Because I do human rights documentation work, and I'd been seeing all of the videos of police killings and police brutality. And, and that led to a two-hour conversation with, with more than one beer. And at the end of it, Roger just looked at me and said, we need to write a book about this. And I laughed. And uh, now six years later, I'm on a podcast with him and you, and, and here we are. And so uh, I think the best way to start is just, how do you want our listeners to know you? I, th I don't think everyone knows you as well as Roger and I do. So um, someone maybe has never heard of Dead Prez, doesn't listen to hip hop. Just tell our listeners who you are and, and, and what you want them to know about you. Well, thank you, first of all, for introducing yourself. So I got to say, well, let me start with introductions. Um, my name is Mutulu Olubala, also known as M1, one half of the Tell It Like It Is, um, Everything Is Political, rap duo Dead Press, uh, that's spelled with the lowercase d and a lowercase p as far as the, the group name. Um, reason being is because the people come first. I'm a father, a student. I am a rule breaker. Um, I am a um, cultural worker. On behalf of people who deserve a voice that has been silenced, on behalf of people who need freedom. And I think that's, that's just the way I would start that introduction. And uh, I, I gotta say to you, as, as a rapper or what people would call a rapper, I would be remiss if, if you know, I just regarded myself as, as that. That's why I call myself a cultural worker these aren't just words, these, these are experiences. So when you say, how does it feel to have uh, someone like you uh, listening and bopping to the type of hip hop that Dead Prez would make, uh, which if you've never heard of Dead Prez, um, I'd like to describe our music as message music. Um, I think that is the category that it probably would live in the best, you know, uh, beside Joan Baez and, and, and beside um, Nina Simone, and uh, and and fella Kusi, I would hope to be in league uh, with these people, with, with Bob and and with uh, Peter and, and Bunny and those brothers and sisters with Rita and them. Um, it, it is in that ilk that our music hopefully would lie. Um, so with that being said, I was trained. Um, I was given political education by the elders who were able to let me see the wide view. Um, and that being uh, the maturity of, the, of our liberation would have to happen amongst the, in a human way, in the most human way, which included everyone. Um, so in the Black rights organization that I sprang from, there were many white comrades. I, I worked side by side with every day. Um, and that comes really as a shock and a surprise to many people who have heard Dead Prez, who have made no Dead Prez, because of our unequivocal stance around Black people's freedom, uh, which can and should not be negotiated. But notwithstanding, 
I've worked arm in arm with North American comrades, European comrades around the same goals of African liberation for over 30 years. So when we began to make the music that we make, it was informed by that uh, expression. We've done shows around the globe where there's all white fans and, and we've done shows where, of course, there's a completely black audience and the message is the same and can be celebrated the exact same way. So I just want to say thank you for being brave, open enough uh, to imagine a new world where our music lives in it, because that is what we were thinking when we made it. That actually brings me perfectly to, to the first question that I had for you, and that's whether you got into music because you had a political message that you wanted to get out, or did that purpose emerge over time as you realized the power that music could have on people? Yeah, again, let me speak right to that. It's like, <clears throat> you know, my consciousness came uh, as a result of uh, my recognition of where I stood, uh, you know, in a social economic status in America. Um, you know, dwell far below, I guess, what they would call the poverty level. I didn't realize it because our culture is so rich. But as soon as I began to feel and understand that um, and, and was able to make a kind of critical analysis of, of where I belong, um, that is when I knew there was a voice. Definitely hip hop was living in me. I was breaking and writing graffiti. Um, I was even a DJ, but I didn't want to rap until I understood more clearly the kind of political sphere in, in which I lived. And so, you know, that would be the time, you know what I mean? Um, I, that's when I knew I had something to say. It was also after, you know, I call it theory, practice, theory. You know, you develop our theory around liberation, but it's the practice in it that really informs you. And then you got to go back to the drawing board and develop that new theory. But what you're hearing in the music is a new theory because um, I had tried everything. Uh, we had organized and rallied in many cities in America, you know, started in Tallahassee um, or Tampa, uh, went to Philadelphia, all around Chicago, you know, through the West Coast, the Bay Area, um, and back around, um, you know, just confronting white power where it stood. This is me as a youth organizer. Um, but it was only after that kind of stuff that I said, you know what, this I know how to incorporate it all. And then that was when I understood the power of what I wanted to have as a message. Um, you talk about the birth that, that it started early uh, in you. I, I want to stay there for a little bit because Jay and I talk about hearing the message through hip hop of who, who we were going to be. It was the, the culture that inspired us socially, politically, professionally, our own upbringing, our own environment, just as yours. Um, and we're all about the same age, you know, uh, late 40s, early 50s. Talk a little bit about those early years. I, I'm, I'm interested in that formative time before you were dead prez and you were organizing. Talk a little bit about what you were organizing and what were the main kind of constructs of your early learnings in the struggle for liberation? Well, <clears throat> thank you. And I got to say, man, at that point in my life, what really made me angry was that there had not been a school to teach me it before where I considered myself as an, as a man, my, my father, a, a science teacher, a middle school science teacher, was not like a 
you know, a, a flaming revolutionary. Um, he was not a member of the Black Panther Party or the movement. I'm not a Panther cub. Um, so when I looked up and realized, wow, we are effed up, it made me angry. I was, I was completely ensconced in how can I understand how we got here? How yeah. did we how do how did we get here? And and that led me to the first tools I had around me. You know, the five percenters tried to explain it around me. Um, Peace of the nation, the gods and earth. Through that, I got Malcolm. I just was talking uh, today about how uh, the message to the black man by Elijah Muhammad led me to our autobiography of Malcolm X, which led me to diet and food and how I treat myself. And here I am, you know, 16, 17 years old, trying to make sense of that through that lens and that experience. Um, you know, that was a real education on my behalf. But when it really began to make sense was what happened between the 60s and, and early 70s and now. And we're talking about that point, the 90s. It just was like 90. And what had happened was COINTELPRO. What had happened was a plan to divide and, and conquer my community from being able to stand f- for itself and on its own. So that happened in my mind. That's where I was at that point in my life, along with, you know, Brand Nubian and Gangstar and The Coup and KRS-One and all that in my head at the same time. So when I tried to figure out what I could do about it, I looked around at the probably the thing that I thought could be the most effective part of that history that had been forgotten. And I, I saw, to me, like, you know, quasars of personalities like Huey P. Newton and um, Eldridge Cleaver, along with, you know, Kathleen, I, I began to organize immediately in that stance. At 16, 17 years old, I just moved to Tallahassee, Florida. This is where I met my partner, Stickman. 17 years old, he was 15, still in high school. And we started to organize what's called the Black Survival Movement, named after the song Black Survivors from Bob Marley. Again, one of my teachers. So we're the Black Survival Movement. And uh, we're marching around Tallahassee, Florida in um, military garb around the campus of Florida A&M University. Because at that time, what I began to understand clearly was that, shout out to HBCUs, what we were turning out were drones. We, they, mm. we weren't effective change makers. I didn't see progressive thought. I didn't see reimagining the system. I, I saw people becoming cogs in the machine instead of disruptors, which I thought the system needed. There's something obviously wrong with the system that we were involved in. And I had some personal struggles going on at that time. By the way, my mom had just been hauled off to jail for 14 years for crack cocaine. Um, you know, so I began to study the prison industrial complex at that time. My mom could be, I'm talking about the sweetest mom you ever met in your life. And I'm like, who, who locks up the moms? Who does that to our communities? And I began to be critical of the system and, and understanding and that kind of system. So that's where I was. If you want to go back to the, the youth organizer that I became that began the Black Survival Movement. Now, this is before I met any kind of really experienced organizers. I hadn't run into the Uhuru Movement. I, I, I hadn't even really began to talk to elders who were brave enough to break from like this kind of, uh, you know, this is not a judgment at all, but like uh, this kind of middle class or, or petty bourgeois kind of analysis about how we would pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, you know, by the means that was given to us. 
I had never met any elders before that who were revolutionaries mm-hmm. until, uh, until that point. And we, and we were embraced by those people who saw us saying, I see these young men, they got some heart and they're not trying to continue this kind of uh, system that had been existing for years. And so that, that's where my mind was. That's who Dead Press began as. That's really good, Jay. What you got next? I got I got more too. We we in it. Why haven't you learned anything? Oh, oh yeah. I have to ask you. Um, you know, when I think of songs that really change the way that I think, "They School" is is really one of those songs that just. I remember the first time I heard it. It just kind of hit me in a funny way. Um, it, it's sort of up there with like "Fuck the Police" and uh, "Open Letter to a Landlord." Like there are a few songs that just, they, that were my education. Obviously I learned formally later. Um, and I just wanted to ask you if you could just talk about that song and how it relates to your educational journey. Were, were you at uh, Florida A&M or were you just around Florida A&M? I just wanted to get a sense of like, how, educationally, you know, obviously th- there was uh, more than just school, but like, what's your relationship with, with formal schooling? Yeah, I, I had attended a summer school program uh, called around actuarial studies around in 89 that summer. And it made me decide to go to Florida A&M University in 1990, that, that year. Actually, after 90. So it was like 1991 when I first went. And yes, I went kind of on, on a whim. Um, around that time, there was a, a war, uh, ironically, uh, that had sparked off in the United States. And, and all of my homeboys were being recruited into the military. So so it was uh, Kuwait. And so all my homeboys were going, you know, and I, ha- I decided that I definitely didn't want to do that. And so I stayed in Florida and, and kept from that summer program on uh, later on. And, and <clears throat> to segue into the song, which I think is some of the realest stuff that we ever wrote, me and Stick began to talk because we were organizing first. We was organizing on the campus, him as a young man, 15 years old, super hyper-intelligent, especially around um, liberation politics for our people. Um, I met him as a young guy on the campus rapping, uh, stick, but he was in high school. So when I tell you, when he says, I went to school with some redneck crackers, right around the time third base dropped the cactus out without reading mouth. I changed my name in 89, cleaning parts of my brain like a baby nine. I took the history class serious, Front row every day of the week, third, third period, period fucking fuck with the teachers' heads, calling them racist. I try to show them crackers some light, they couldn't face it. I got my diploma from a school called Rickers full of teenage mothers and drug dealing niggas in the hallways. The popo was always present, searching through niggas' possessions, looking for dope and weapons. Get your lessons. That's what my moms kept stressing. I tried to pay attention, but their classes weren't interesting. They seemed to only glorify the European. Claiming Africans was only three fifths of human beings. Can't teach us shit. My people need freedom. We trying to get all we can get. All my high school teachers can suck. So my- this is my partner, Sticks Rap. No part of it did he embellish. I, I saw it firsthand. See, I, I, I went to, to Rickards High School. I, I stopped hanging around who I thought were kind of like, you know, these kind of robots on, on Florida A&M campus. And, and I saw myself in a different light. So I ventured off the campus and I would meet my homeboy. Like, again, he's a year and a half younger than me, but we connected like Legos. So at that point, I'm like, yeah, I'll meet you after that. But let me tell you, school, at that time, stick 
had there was an assembly where his he was interested in rapping this he, he again he was thick when i met him meaning a, a conscious brother so his teacher had challenged him uh in english class to write because they knew he was a rapper to write lyrics to a book and so he did that and the teacher said wow since you did it so well you can say it at the pep rally and so Stick had gone to this pep rally and did a rap about Malcolm X, and it got everybody on their feet. What it did was cause the teacher to yank the mic from him. And when that and when that happened, a melee ensued inside the school. So by the time I was able to arrive, the TVs were there. The Nation of Islam was out front, and he was being walked out of the school. This really happened in his real life. He made the paper in Tallahassee for saying a rap about Malcolm X and had to be enveloped by the Nation of Islam. And, and so this is, when I say Florida and m is in Tallahassee, you, it's really South Georgia. It's, it's, North, it's North Florida, but the politics is South Georgia. You know what I mean? It's still Klan shit happening. So um, with that being said, um, day schools comes out of that particular thing. And to just expound a little more, when we performed that song and quickly after we actually made the song and it came to the world, we, we traveled to New York. We were able to land a contract on Loud Records, an oppressive contract deal on Loud Records. Um, we were able to put our music out under our own without anyone in interfering in the creative process. Um, and so that song happened through the needle eye of me through and it came out. It happened to the world. And, and when it happened, I was able to look back immediately and criticize the song. So for the last 30 years, we've been singing that song, but that is not actually... When I say they schools can't teach us shit, my people need freedom. We're trying to get all we can get. All my high school teachers can suck my telling me white man lies straight bull. Okay, I do mean that. I do mean the angst and rage in that. But I also mean it in a resolutionary way. And that yeah. is, if I could, if I, and, and hindsight, come on, man, hindsight, 2020, like a mug. If I could, um, and I do in live shows and performance, amend what that means today, it would mean community control over schools. It would mean being able to teach our right and true history about who we are and where we rightfully belong. It would mean talk about the real things. Let's talk about mental health. Let's talk about um, keeping our families together. Let's talk about the war on drugs that tore our families apart. Let's be real. That would be a part of school. It wouldn't be so critical of this school system um, that I, I would want to negate education, period, which, which sometimes extremists can get out of songs that are critical in that way. And again, to some people I have to say, it's only a song. How much can you do with a song? Um, but I do have to uh, just kind of make that statement clear as I look at it as a 50-year-old. And, and, and the artwork, though, right? The artwork, if you were to place that piece of art on a canvas, to be able to look at that art and to be able to interpret that art as um, the ability to make things better and control things better, right? That's, that's how I saw the art. I mean, I saw the art as, as that, right? Is that that vehement critique of the school system and the educational system was for the purpose of us 
analyzing it further, right? Especially those of us that are not the artists, right? Those of us that are the PhDs in education, those of us that are the lawyers, those of us that are the doctors, those of us that that are getting um, PhDs in, in education and the importance of true history in education, right? And being able to utilize that artwork to motivate us to see something different. You talk about hip-hop, we're at 50 years, and this is how we kind of came together on the panel. Um, 50 years of hip-hop is coinciding with 50 years of the prison industrial complex. That's right. Um, I don't want to say you're not just an artist. You are all of the above, right? So you mm -hmm. are an artist, a father, a, you know, now an elder, an OG for, for, for these youngins. Um, talk to us a little bit about The Last Prisoner Project and your work and your connection with that organization. Because again, this is Official Ignorance, the Death in Custody podcast. Um, we're talking to Matulu, AKA M1, um, one half of Dead Prez. Talk to us a little bit about that last prisoner project, because I want to go into this connection and why you're here on our podcast. It's not just that you're a revolutionary thought leader. You have a direct connection uh, to some of the reforms that we think is important. Well, I've got to say uh, a bittersweet welcome home, but rest in peace to a freedom fighter named Rochelle McGee, mm. who, who uh, passed away today. He was uh, one of the longest standing political prisoners, uh, former Black Liberation Army and Black Panther Party member, passed away today after, I don't know, too long in prison, bittersweet. With that being said, the war on drugs and our ability to be able to be liberated um, is directly correlated. They, they locked up our community. They locked up uh, our leadership. They locked up the idea. And that is the same war on drugs that created the prison industrial complex that has continued down the line to today. So I'm, as a New Yorker, representing Brooklyn, New York for so many years, which is where Dead Press pretty much got our bones, um, the heart of Brooklyn, and being shaken down by Giuliani's, you know, uh, street crime team force who did, uh, you know, the most, you know, egregious kind of violations of, of our rights. I definitely see myself as a frontline soldier when we're talking about um, something like legalizing cannabis inside New York State, because so many of us have paid the price. So with that being said, I, seeing the Office of Cannabis Management choose its cohorts and begin to move this legislation forward, um, I said there's no way that we can have this conversation without talking about the many people who were imprisoned and still pay the price for cannabis today. Even though you plan to make billions of dollars, which is, believe me, the only reason why this is happening, even though you plan to glorify your objective around this plant, this is what we have been vilified for for so many years, and this is where I enter that fight. Um, I opened two galleries which served as a kind of information centers around cannabis, one in Brooklyn called Gifted BK and one in the Lower East Side Manhattan called Legacy NYC. Um, and the Legacy 
is around the legacy workers of cannabis who also now see the ability as, you know, cannabis is the new cotton, that if anybody's going to be involved in um, the justice of the cannabis plant, then we are. And also our objective has to be to release any of our brothers and sisters who have been unjustly locked up behind this plant. So as we rub el elbows and shoulders with and talked about watching with the most scrutiny, uh, you know, the same people, lawmakers and legislators and policymakers who had stood on with, with a um, condescending eye just a week ago. Well, today, let's, let's see what we're going to do today. And it, it's me that held their hand to the fire, their foot to the fire to say this is where we're going to be. Now, that is the reason why I have respect for The Last Prisoner Project. The Last Prisoner Project is an organization that um, has been able to contribute on the books to more people doing time for cannabis than any other organization in America. Um, been part and partial to connecting families who have been um, you know, disconnected with, their fam with, with a family member simply because of cannabis for so many years, helping welcome home and, and um, actualize and rehabilitate uh, a situation that I think needs much more help than lip service that uh, Joe Biden has done it, making false and empty promises about and running based on the campaign that he would free all cannabis prisoners and expunge their records. These are his own words, and, and you can quote him. As I said when I ran for president, no one should be in jail just for using or possessing marijuana. It's already legal in many states. And criminal records for marijuana possession have led to needless barriers to employment, to housing, and educational opportunities. And that's before you address the racial disparities around who suffers the consequences. While white and black and brown people use marijuana at similar rates, black and brown people are arrested, prosecuted, and convicted at disproportionately higher rates. There are thousands of people who are convicted for marijuana possession who may be denied employment, housing, or educational opportunities as a result of that conviction. Too many lives have been upended because of our failed approach to marijuana. It's time that we right these wrongs. So when I met Steve D'Angelo and he opened a place on the board for me to be involved in this work, one, this is work that I already do. The release of political prisoners who are cannabis prisoners qualify as because cannabis is a political issue to me is paramount on my list. So um, I was happy to join the other comrades and representatives who also want to stand on this side of history and say, yes, let's talk about legacy, but let's also talk about justice. Let's talk about keeping good on the promise. Let's talk about not only decriminalizing, um, but let's talk about expunging records and releasing, which can be done with the stroke of a pen actually. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, being down with the last prisoner project was about that. Can I just jump in and, uh, well, well two things. Um, Brendan, our producer, has put a note in our chat saying um, that we shouldn't be monopolizing all of the, the time. And if you want to jump in with questions for us, you should feel free to do so. So I just wanted <laughs> to throw that out there. Um, but I wanted to ask you about um, the majority of people who are actually incarcerated now, and those are people who have uh, been convicted of violent offenses of one sort or another. And the, I think the real, um, the huge challenge, I don't want to say the real challenge, but the huge challenge, if we want to decarcerate, is figuring out how we want to handle issues of violence in our country 
generally. And I just wanted to get a sense of kind of from your political conversations and your political education and music and being in the the hip hop community, if you have any thoughts about how we can both recognize harm, the harm that comes from violence, and also recognize that people are often violent because violence has been done to them. And so how do we figure out how to get the people out who haven't just uh, sold drugs or purchased drugs or been caught with drugs um, and put them back into the world where they belong? Um, And so let me hear this question clearly. You're saying not just cannabis prisoners, but how do we talk about the general rehabilitation of people locked up? Exactly. My point is that I don't know the exact statistics, but something like a quarter maybe even less of people who are incarcerated now are incarcerated for drug offenses. The majority of people, certainly the largest percentage of people who are incarcerated, and I I can get the numbers, um, have been convicted of violent offenses. And so Roger and I have spent a lot of time demonstrating that prisons and jails are deadly institutions. they, They don't often work to rehabilitate people. They don't really solve the the, the problem of making someone whole who's been victimized. And so how do we think even more broadly than marijuana offenses or drug offenses and get people home to their communities that they've been taken from and actually create a world in which people can heal and and, and communities can heal? I, I love that you said heal um, because I think that is at the basis of what, what's happening here. And that, that healing has to start with the why. If we're going to unpack violence, I think some of the most violent things that you can do is prevent somebody from having a proper education. Some of the most violent things you could do is prevent someone from having daily bread. You know what I mean? Just eating, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, along with the this capitalist construct comes with, you know, the violence of haves and have nots. I saw one of the sharks on Shark Tank talk about how the 1% having so much wealth, that 1% it, it encompasses what like uh, the, the rest of the 90 something percent of people was good. Th- his perspective was that this capitalist formula percentage was good because it drives people to aspire to get more and attain. But w- in fact, what it does is dangle this poisonous carrot in front of us in a way that is uh, unfair. Th- th- this doesn't really reward or forward society's objectives of us being able to live as productively as possible. It creates what's called like this kind of dog eat dog mentality. And, and this to me is what looks like violence. Again, it, it, it deserves to be unpacked. And now I have to say this, everybody in, in prison and jail uh, is not there because they were fighting to eat some food. Some people have issues, but the majority of what happens is we are in jail for robbery and depth and trying to even the score and 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 um hustling and even drug dealing the the idea of the war on drugs and the part that we play in it you know because we aren't the real drug dealer we can implicate big pharma we don't have to look far to implicate the u.s government for crack cocaine and and so you know who's the real drug dealer when we talk about violence how do we politically impact that and so yes i think we have to really overturn a system which has been brutal to a working class uh, that those reparations have never been paid. Um, I think we have to begin to talk about real fairness when we, when we talk about how this system was created. No, you don't have to be a socialist, but we do have to understand that 
uh, if we're going to have a 400 year head start, then we got to talk about how that looks, how that comes to bear when we have to live in the same communities and share this same earth. And so I think a re-envisioning of how government happens or governing people, our society happens, um, I think would alleviate a lot of the reason why so many of us are, are simply locked up. And again, it's not to completely simplify it down to the system's bad, so therefore people do violence. The violence is learned, you know. Shit, Hollywood teaches more violence than anything. And ain't that truth? And, you know, I, I think it has a lot to do with the psyche of what has been cranked out of kind of like the uh, Americanism and the American frame of mind. Um, I think we got to do a lot of rethinking when it comes to that in order to see a future where uh, decarceration is real, where prisons aren't factories. Let's think about the intention of that. If you build these factories, which you want to underpay workers, you know, I just think there's a lot at hand here when, when we talk about who is languishing in jail and who is the real criminal and what the, is violence. The complexity, right, of the solution. I think, you know, Jay started off this conversation talking about there may be people that don't listen to hip hop. Uh, there may be people that don't know or don't understand the culture or maybe have come into hip hop understanding that it is only one way, that it is the rapper, right? And and it is today's rapper that that doesn't rap with a level of knowledge and consciousness. Um, but I think what we show here is the level of intentionality that hip hop breeds, right? The level of intellectuality that hip hop has, the um, the resolve, right? And the need to create responses and resolution and practice that actually heals a community is in our culture of hip hop and understanding, you know, I'm a violence preventionist, um, Mutulu. And so when we talk about the social determinants of health, we talk about where we live, love, work, play, and have our being and lack of access and lack of connection with the things that we need in community is inherently going to establish a violent outcome particularly in communities of America where um, where violence is celebrated, right? Where violence is um, how things are got, right? And, and still, even now, right now, we have a war that's happening, right? And violence is going to be the way that the world is seeing how to resolve this conflict that's hundreds of miles away. And some will say absolutely because they did this and they did that. And there's this conversation and this argument about how we resolve our issues through violence. And that is the only way that we can do it. Our children are learning that, right? Um, and not only our children are learning that, but the children in Israel and in Palestine are learning that. Um, and forever, that is going to be the context and construct of people uh, because of what is happening right now it will forever be violent right and there will be an emotional response um to anyone that says anything other than well you killed mine so i'm going to kill yours and so we're living in this environment now and it is the human experience to be that way um one of the things that we talk about 
is death in custody. And we talk about death in custody in a way that it really doesn't matter what you did or didn't do. Purely coming into contact with the criminal legal system is hazardous to your health. It doesn't matter if you were doing nothing like Sandra Bland or you had just committed a crime or have thought to have been committed a crime. There are individuals that are dying before they hit the doors of the jail and are dying even before they've been sentenced. They're dying because there's $500 that is needed for their bail, but they're a diabetic and need dialysis twice a week and are unable to get their proper dialysis and are dying in a pretrial environment. And so one of the things is, what are your thoughts about the importance of capturing data surrounding death in custody? I, I talked about on our last meeting, a creation of a checkbox on the U.S. Standard Death Certificate that gives us an opportunity to understand a lot more about how many people and under what circumstances. But through your experiences and your walk, your travels, how important it is to gather the data um, when, when trying to solve a problem um, like we're trying to solve? I think, uh, one, fantastic. Um, and, and again, like death in custody, every time I hear it, you know, it sounds like something I, I, I know so well. We have these discussions amongst our homies about so-and-so, you know, didn't make it to the police station. That's a common conversation where I'm from. Um, you know, it's Emmett Till every time we live. And for me, that box, which is a brilliant idea, suggestion, mission, um, is I think it's even more about being informed about the data, about how many people died in custody but the forthrightness of who would check the box. Cause that's where the fight happens. The fight yeah. happens when the pen moves over the check box and where it should be checked is not checked. That place is where the battle really rages because then we're going to talk about the justness. Violence is injustice. And, uh, What's so crazy is like when you talk about death in custody, it's like who dies in custody? Who do we look like? You're right. It does not matter the crime. You should not die in custody. No police officer should be judge, jury, and executioner over any life. Mass murderers arrive to jail alive. It's weird that don't make it. We're the ones. It's the fortitude of the person and the accountability. The same accountability it would take to pass legislation that Biden said he would pass. It's that fortitude. It's the same one that would move the pen over to the box and say, yep, that guy died in custody. Because what it will do is let us examine exactly what's going on in here. Because we don't know. It's dark. Ain't no light. Mm -hmm. Cut on the light. And that's what that check box will do. So, yeah, there's a lot of justice that needs to be had in order for us to heal. A lot. All right, gentlemen. Listen, I wanted to round table this thing. You guys met at Congressional Black Caucus. You were on a panel together. What was it that you saw in each other's perspective that drew you together to even conceptualize joining each other on the show today? 
is really the fearlessness of Matulu. I've admired that fearlessness and the willingness to speak truth to power and that admiration. And then in the midst of that, this abundance of humility. So in the midst of fearlessness, there's humility. And that equals genuine. You know, that's the equation. So when you're fearless and it's about your people and you're humble and know it's not about you, to me, that's genuine. And so when I met you, good brother, and then heard your comments on the panel, um, you know, I beelined to you and said, man, we let's see if we can connect more. Yeah. Well, I, I, I got to return that um, the same way, um, you know, brother Roger. I got to say that we have been assembled in a group um, that really was speaking to, I think, the, the power brokers of, of what it is to see culture as a phenomenon. That's why the hip hop caucus is what it is and able to be in the position that it is. We see this cultural phenomenon that we live in. Well, what I saw in you was the follow through, the intention to clearly detail for our people what it is in front of us that we can see and feel. Um, it takes so much daring. You talk about fearlessness. I mean, to go in knowing that you are giving the information that will empirically be able to allow every uh, one of us to say, this is where we have to stand. This is the data. Look at look at what happened here. You, you do that and you go in knowing you're going to be the most hated man in the room. I mean, that what what kind I, I just um, I felt that from your chair. I think we were almost at polar opposites and on seating, but I felt you so clearly in that. And um, during that hip hop uh, caucus, when Benjamin Crump came in the room and, and then I saw the family members of those who directly benefit from your work in action. You know, that's my mama. Those were that, that was my our mothers. Yeah. Yeah, and you, and that that service that you do made me see, man. Um, you're invaluable to us, uh, to our community, and I'm honored to be able to share that this any platform with you. Thank you, and My thank brother. you for your work. Yeah, Jay, you've done so much work around the world in your human rights observation reporting regarding death in custody. Can you name a country that? gets it right? No. Um, I think that there are countries that do better than the U.S., but policing is a form of state power, and the state never wants to tell on itself. So I have not come across too mm. many countries that do really good work, partly because I am, I don't want to say attracted to the places with problems, but I end up at the places with problems. So I'm sure there might be a country or two that actually has pretty good data um, where where uh, policing is constrained by the people and, and is done in uh, in service of and for the benefit of the people um, and, and not the government or the state, uh, w which are all too often uh, in opposition to the people that they're supposed to be serving. Um, so I don't I don't have a great answer for that. I just want to say there's probably some small tribe in the Amazon who get their policing right. I bet. Right. <laughs> the, the, ones, the ones that don't have police are the ones that get it right. So, Okay, so for any of you, same question regarding death and custody. Is there a state 
that is at least leaning towards doing it better? And why? Ironically, Texas is the state where you can get the best data now. Uh, we have an entire chapter on that in the book. The reason is that there was a historical moment where the, the Democratic Party there was losing power and the Republicans who were in the ascendancy uh, were interested in showing what bad leaders the Democrats were. And so the, these conservative Republicans that were kind of slowly taking control aligned with the liberal Democrats from the cities, mostly black and brown and also a few Jewish uh, leaders, um, to, to try and hold the state accountable for deaths that were occurring in custody. And they actually passed a pretty good um, reporting mechanism and put it into law. And since that time, it's there, and there have been efforts to roll it back. Um, it was strengthened in some ways after Sandra Bland's uh, death, um, but there have been multiple attempts to declaw it or defang it, uh, because that's what happens whenever you give power to people to oversee what the government is doing, to oversee the overseers. Um, the overseers want to take that power back because they don't want uh, people to know what's being done. And so Texas has a good system. There are a few other places where there are good systems. DC, because of Roger, has a checkbox on the the local death certificate. Yep. Um, it's an unusual city. Uh, and, you know, I think those are the those are the examples that I would look to. Do either of you have a state uh, or anything to add on the state question? No, I do not. And I defer to Jay for all of that. Thank you for that information <laughs> um, because my radar is, is not even there. You know, it's, it's all bad. It's all bad. Okay. The last one is uh, you're going to bake a pie together. You guys are the chefs. You must work together and collaborate. You're empowered to make change. And I want to know what is one, aside from the checkbox, if you were to go past that and say, you know, give a couple tangible, straightforward low-hanging fruit improvements that you could make as the three of you. What does that look like? And I, pre I preface this for people listening to say that all three of you have an immense amount of exposure to the jailing system from different perspectives. And I think this is probably the most important question of the whole podcast series is if you can rebake the pie with the three of your talents and skills, what does it look like and how do we get there? You know, I think my contribution, um, you know, the, the nutmeg of it uh, would be that Biden signs an executive order to make good on the promise that he got, he gave to release people for cannabis who are languishing for something that's being celebrated right now. That, and that's, that's an easy answer for me regarding just this conversation. Um, but then I guess the cayenne pepper, if I had, depending on what we're making, is is like, let's end this idea about voting and black people's voting um, and the Voting Rights Act and, what, and what's, on, what's at hand about how, what our human rights should be naturally and take that idea off the table about voting for that or not. I think it dehumanizes us. And I only have to say that because you said low hanging fruit. Yeah. Um, and those are some things that we are considering today. Yeah, you know, I spent a lot of time talking about social determinants of health. And so nothing is easy, right? So even what Matulu has identified, that's not easy stuff. Um, and so really um, ensuring that there's adequate access uh, to education, economics, housing, health care, um, environmental and non-disparate criminal justice practices in community. I think that every effort 
needs to be put in creating not equity to be equal to some other version of a lack of access, right, which is occurring in poor white communities, but a, a, a true access lens for communities across the nation, right? Um, poor black, poor white communities, poor Latino communities, and making sure that those access, because it's those access points when families have access, uh, when individuals have access, when young people have access and can see themselves as as successful and whatever that is success, not not the money in the parade that comes along with capitalism per se, um, but but the safe and healthy families um, enough to make sure that your your the next generation in your family is better than the one that you came from. That spirit that I came from, that you know we all wanted to be better than our parents and our parents wanted us to be better than them type of access. And that comes with the vote that comes with uh, this lack of, of microwave politics, this notion that we really need to sacrifice for one another in order for us to be able to be whole. And so I think that's really the sweet potato and that cayenne pepper and nutmeg, you know what I mean? That is to (laughs) me, the, it is the base of it. The, the equity access lens um, and that's all the work that we're trying to do. I mean, this work is just a piece of the equity work that I that is part of my personal portfolio, right? This is the equity work. It's just this this criminal justice side is just one part of what a W.E.B. Du Bois talks about in those those five areas. My brother Jay Aronson, I know you got something to add to that already mm-hmm. delicious smelling pie. I don't know. I don't know what what spice I'm adding, uh, but. I would say that that there's an easy one or a a very low hanging fruit. And that's just, man, if people knew the history of our criminal legal system, they would want to change it. It, Mm. it radicalized me to learn the origins of the system. It's not in, not just in slave, you know, slave patrols. That's the story that often gets, gets told. It's in controlling ethnics. It's, it's allowing one ethnic group to control another. It's about economics. It's about, profit. It's about all of those things. And the minute that you understand where the system comes from and and why it works exactly the way that it's intended, if you have a heart and if you, if you, if you want people to enjoy basic rights, you actually can't, but want to change the system or, or overturn it, um, depending on how radical you want to be. So that's one. The other one I think is just getting people to realize that safety isn't just something that can be created through violence. It needs to be created through care. And I talk about this all the time. We obviously need some form of armed policing because there are more guns than people in this country. There are 400 million guns or so for 330 million people. And, you know, I'm I'm not going to say that we can, we can live in a world where police don't use violence ever. Um, But, but the, 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 the basic response has to be care and has to be love, not violence. And, and so I don't know, that one's a little bit harder. Um, but I think when we realize, when we understand how the system was created, we'll be more willing to try alternatives to, to what hasn't worked that we keep doing over and over again uh, right now. Oh, that was fantastic, guys. Brother Matulu, we thank you so much for taking the time to be with us this afternoon. There's thousands of people that are listening to this podcast. If there's anything that you want to leave them with, 
Leave them with it right now. Right now, more than ever, we have the ability to stand, and we've said it in, in maybe too many times, but on the right side of history. There's clearly a line being drawn in the sand around which way our future looks, who will lead it, and how beautiful of, of a place that we can live in. I think it's time for us to really decide it. Like I said, with so much at stake today, um, you know, what's happening in, in, in Palestine and with Israel is not new, but it has been culminating. It is uh, part and partial to a huger G play that we have to really grapple with. And that is where's justice. And, and it, it's not easy to unleaf. It's not, it's not as simple as we'd like to make it, but we got to do that work. And if we don't step into that space now to do it, if we don't roll up our sleeves and deal with it, it will be left to be done by people who don't have our best interest at hand. And um, I've been here for it. I'm still here for it. I'm looking around to see who else is here for it. That's it. Official Ignorance, the Death in Custody podcast.